So in uh, 2001 to 2002, I was a uh, like a hall counselor at college. Um, really big deal. Uh, they took you know the most mature and respectable students and uh, put them in charge of freshmen. Uh, so naturally, I was selected. And uh, it, well, I mean, I most I didn't really care about the kids so much as I cared about getting a, a discount in my room and board at school. Um, but I you know I liked the kids too, so we we had fun together. Um, I remember one morning, though, uh, I had a small single uh, room, and I would keep the door locked at night because, um, well, if, if you know what goes on at college, it's frequently not um, the holiest of things, and I was expected to take care of people who made bad choices. And so I would lock the door because I didn't really want to deal with it. Um, I had other people to do that. But, but this one particular night, I had the door locked, and it, was, um, it, it ended up being actually a pretty big problem because um, in the morning... Um, pretty early, uh, this is on the East Coast, I lived in uh, North Carolina, uh, pretty early in the morning, um, I began hearing a banging on my door, like, Tom, Tom, get out here, and I recognized uh, the voice, it was uh, David, he was uh, one of my freshmen, um, he was a, an angry young man, and uh, also a member of our Army ROTC program at Davidson College. And he was banging on the door as loud as he could, and he was screaming, he was screaming, Tom, get out here, we're going to war. And so I, that, that, that caught me. That was not the normal sort of reason for pulling Tom out of bed. So I jumped out and I ran outside uh, into his room where everyone, all the freshmen in the hall were gathered around a small television. And I, I, I just sat down and there was smoke coming out of um, a very tall building. And then it fell to the ground and I realized it was the World Trade Center. And, and as I was sitting there, uh, the second plane hit the second tower. And uh, David and his friend Micah, who were both members of Army ROTC, began using um, language that's really inappropriate, um, at calling out a certain group of people, um, uh, Islamic terrorists, and uh, getting really excited about going um, overseas and murdering them to, to, to get revenge uh, for what had just happened. It took a couple years or at least a year, uh, for that to begin happening. But as you'll recall, over the last um, really almost 15 years, we've been in a state of some kind of armed conflict with um, non-state actors who you know, confess radical Islam. You may remember uh, a few years ago, we actually got out of Iraq, so um, we're, we don't have a large military presence there, but uh, based on what's been happening in the Middle East, uh, and, and also in Europe, with um, the recent terror attacks in Paris, you can almost begin to feel in your heart um, a little bit of a drumbeat. Uh, the drums of war are beginning to pound again. Uh, and it may be the case that very, very soon, you will begin hearing public political candidates begin making a case for a third that's, yes, third invasion of Iraq. Now, uh, for some of you, you're a member of my generation. My generation has been the generation that has, um, has bled in the Middle East. Um, I, I, I am not. I, I, I am not. I, I do remember in uh, 2001, standing outside of our dorm, uh, some of my friends, not my freshmen, discussing whether or not we were going to either enlist or um, join our Army ROTC at the school to um, be a part of the war effort. For a number of various different reasons, um, I elected not to. However, um, I, I have friends who did. 
Um, I have four very, very close friends who have either served in Iraq or Afghanistan in a number of different um, capacities, and we'll talk about those as we talk about the, the we, we go through the sermon today. But I am uh, it, war is real to me. I didn't think that was going to happen growing up. I I grew up in a time of, of peace in the nineties, um, really a time of peace in the Cold War. Um, American service people, but so I never expected this to happen. Nevertheless, it did, and it did in a very, very powerful way. Um, I have four very, very good friends, all of whom have been um, very much impacted by the reality of systematic violence that takes place in war. And since the drumbeat of war is about ready to get started again, I think it's critical that we as the members of the church think through what we think war is, how it ought to be prosecuted, if at all, and um, what, ultimately, a just war looks like. A just war. And interestingly enough, today's passage in Esther is really about the Jews going to and in this, in this passage, in this text, they, we're going to see some contours of what it might look like to prosecute or execute war rightly. And maybe not. We'll go through it and we'll think critically about it. But we are going to see the people of God going to war and we're going to look at what that looks like. And then we're going to try and think critically about what that might mean for um, Christians in the United States of America in 2015. Um, normally we, we do, uh, we stand during the uh, reading of the text. Today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you remain seated, and as we go through the text, even just the first time, I'm going to point out a few uh, highlights, interesting things in the text, to give you a sense of what's going on, and then we'll move to a theological reflection. So you don't need to, to, uh, to stand today, um, but we will read together. So this is Esther 9, 1 to 17. A just war? Now, in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, kind of what we think of as December, although it actually on our current calendar lands in March. On the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. You may recall where we are in the story of Esther. Esther lives um, in the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire, the king is Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, as we know him in the Greek. And he has given a decree at the very beginning of our book that on this day, the 13th day of the month of Adar, you could think of it as December 13th, um, all the Jews of the kingdom are going to be executed. All, the, all their neighbors are going to take up arms, and they're going to go next door, and they're going to hack down all the Jews on account of what Haman, um, the enemy of the Jews, has, has written as a law. And unfortunately, in the Persian Empire, they don't have a a Congress like we do, where if we don't like a law, we can strike it down. Uh, They can't do that. Once the king has made a a proclamation, that is law, and that is the way things will be no matter what. The king doesn't go back on his word, presumably because the king never makes mistakes. But in this case, the king did make a mistake because he found out that the people he was supposed to have murdered include his wife, include her adopted father, who just saved his life. And so he realizes he's made a terrible mistake, but he can't go back on his word. And so two weeks ago, we learned that he had Mordecai, uh, that's Esther's uh, adopted father, write a new law, a counteracting law, a different law. And we saw that the law was almost point for point the opposite of what Haman had said. Haman's law had said, you go and you murder your neighbors, and you kill all their kids and their children, and then you plunder them and you take all their stuff. And Mordecai writes a, a law that's almost almost identical. You're going to rise up against the people who come against you on the 13th of Adar, and you're going to kill them and their children. You're going to take their stuff. 
And when the day comes, the organization of the Jews has worked, and so they're able to resist as their enemies rise up against them. And the question is why? What changed after Mordecai's law was put out? Verse 2, the Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. The Jews' war is successful because everyone in the kingdom has, has, has gotten, become afraid of them. It's successful because all the people in power recognize that Mordecai, who has been elevated to the level of prime minister, is a, is, has the king's favor. The Jews have what we call in basketball the big mo, momentum, the hot hand. They can't lose. Everything seems to have fallen into place such that they are unstoppable and irresistible. Interestingly, uh, the hot hand is a, statistically a myth. Um, if you, the, the hot hand is where you feel like you can't miss every time you shoot. And it happens in almost any, um, athletic, uh, any sport or any, um, art. But it's actually a miss statistically. There, there's no, um, there's no such thing as the hot hand. Nevertheless, there's a feeling that we have, right? When we just can't miss, we just can't lose, we get the sense that we're unstoppable. Well, this is what had happened in the Persian Empire. The Jews, there was an, almost an aura about them, almost as if they had, I don't know, divine protection. And, and so people didn't, they, they felt like they couldn't overcome it. And yet, and yet, there were still some who went up against them because their hatred was so deep. Verse 4. For Mordecai, Esther's adopted father, was great in the king's palace. His fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly, increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with a stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. Now what's going on in between the lines of this text is that it sounds like two things were happening on this 13th of December. On the one hand, there were some people who hated the Jews so deeply and were so hot in their hatred that they, they took advantage of the king's law and rose up to murder their neighbors because they hated the Jews so deeply. But then there were other people that the Jews knew hated them, anti-Semites, who got a sense that, ooh, this is not the time, and they stayed home. But the Jews didn't wait for them, and the Jews didn't leave them at home. They, quote, did what they pleased with those who hated them. They kicked down doors, and they fought an offensive war. They went out against known targets, people that they thought would do them harm if given a chance, and the Jews cut them down. Verse 6, And in Shushan, or Susa, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arizai, Aridai, and Vajazatha. Wow. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews they killed. But they did not lay a hand on the booty or the plunder. Interesting that this is brought out. It's because the Jews are looking for people who, the sons of Haman are in retreat. They're scared. And the Jews go out and get them anyway. Because they're the most virulent anti-Semites. But the violence doesn't stop there. 
Verse 11, on that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Susa, the citadel. And the 10 sons of Haman, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. The king is callous to the violence. In fact, he seems to enjoy it, uh, probably because he wants to make his wife happy, and also because we know from history the man just enjoyed a good bloodbath. Then Esther said, verse 13, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do again tomorrow according to to today's decree. And let Haman's dead ten sons be impaled on stakes. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Susa, and they impaled Haman's ten sons. You may have heard that William Tecumseh Sherman once said, War is hell. You may have heard that if you want to win a war, you commit to, quote, total war. When the enemy is retreating, you chase him down, and you cut him again. It's an emphatic statement that Esther asks for. An emphatic statement what? That the empire favors the Jews. It is as if there are neon lights all over the empire that say, do not mess with the Jews. You will not only be killed, you will be humiliated. Verse 15, And the Jews who were in Susa gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder of the booty. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on both the 13th day of the month of Adar and on the 14th day of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. So one of my friends um, was a sapper in the uh, army. He uh, joined ROTC and, uh, after September 11th and uh, did um, four years, had uh, two tours in Iraq. Um, and he was a sapper. His job in, in the army was to lead. If you've seen that movie, The Hurt Locker, where they go and they um, detonate roadside bombs, IEDs, that was his job. And so he uh, led a convoy, or he had a platoon, that would go out whenever there was um, trouble, and they would go and they would clear roads. Oftentimes, what they had to do is someone, uh, a Marine convoy, would be hit, and would, the Marines would be requesting extraction. But it's our policy not to leave uh, technology in the hands of militants. And so uh, my friend would, would lead his platoon out, and they would you know, hook up the tank or the Humvee or whatever, and they would drag it out and clear the way from further IEDs all, all the time under fire. He tells a story um, to his close friends about one of his, um, one of his sorties, I guess is what you call them, I'm not sure, uh, where he got a distress call from a Marine unit that was conducting raids uh, that they'd hit, uh, been hit by an IED. When they got on the scene, uh, the Humvee was totaled and there was damage to one of the tracks on a tank that was uh, being used. And so my friend's uh, platoon got to work, but the whole time they were being shelled by, um, by insurgent forces using rocket-propelled grenades. Uh, the Marines had set up a perimeter um, and used uh, concentrated fire to protect my friend. Uh, however, one of his men um, was, uh, was hit um, and killed. 
the operation took 16 hours outside the wire. That's what they called outside of the, uh, the safe zone. Um, and I, I think it was in Ramadi, but I'm not sure. I can't remember. Uh, my friend is a, he's a strong he's a strong man. Um, I, he's much stronger than I am. Uh, he 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 he's come home and, and it's interesting when he talks about war. He he rarely does. He he won't speak about it very often. Um, but in, in certain circumstances, he will open up a little bit. And and he remains um, after this experience a, a fierce proponent of United States uh, military intervention in uh, the Middle East. And, and if you ask him why, I'll say you know my friend. I mean, what a terrible thing that you have to live with. Um, what is it about that that you continue to, to be you know, in favor of? And he says, it's the right thing to do. Which is a really, um, it's a fascinating idea. It's the idea that, that there are times in life, there's times in the world when violence, systematic violence, is not just something that happens. It's good, or if not good, at least the lesser of two evils. He, my friend, believes in something we call just war. He believes there's a time and a place when war is righteous, when it is actually the fulfillment of the will of God in the world. As horrible as it can be, it sometimes is that. And that brings up a question for us. What is it that makes for a just war? Well, we in, in 2015, are the, uh, we inherit two, I would say, and this is, I'm painting with very broad strokes here, but two very broad traditions of just war theory. Um, and I'd like to just briefly introduce them to you. Uh, the first is what I'm calling the classical liberal tradition. The classical liberal tradition. Liberal not in the sense that we think of it in our current political context, but classically liberal, meaning derived from the time of the Enlightenment, um, maybe the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment, where um, what was developed was an idea that people had rights inherent, inalienable rights, and that these rights could not be violated. And as a result, when they were, there were times for war. That's one. That's the classical liberal tradition. We'll talk about that in just a second. The second is the classical Christian tradition. Uh, the classical tr- Christian tradition, which we really uh, derive from St. Augustine uh, in the 4th century AD. Uh, he wrote, and we have a lot of his writings, and we, um, we can derive from that some of our understanding of what a Christian idea of just war is, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, uh, we're going to go to the next slide in just a second. When we do, I want to set this up for you. This is a clip from a movie that uh, came out in 1993. It's called Gettysburg. It's a very long film, four hours long almost. Uh, one of my, fa- my dad's favorites. He's a history buff on the Civil War. And there's this really uh, powerful scene about a half hour into the movie where a young man, uh, a colonel in the Union Army, Joshua Chamberlain from Maine, the 20th Maine, is um, confronted with uh, 20 deserters. Uh, and these guys are from Maine, but they don't want to fight anymore. And so he's explaining to them in this clip why we're doing what we do. And so as we watch it, I really want you to listen for what is the justification. Why is it that these men are you know, pledging their lives, their fortunes, they are giving up almost everything, possibly. For what? Why? So let's take a look. Oh, no.
It's a powerful clip. Um, it may be a little bit anachronistic, meaning that Chamberlain did, in the history, he was a professor from Bowdoin College who volunteered for the Union Army. He did hold uh, some of these ideals, probably never expressed them just that way. But it's powerful precisely because it articulates for us what we think we're doing when we go to war. Uh, and, and so what makes for just war in that clip? What is he saying? Well, there's two things in this classical liberal justification for war. Self-defense and a war of liberation. You notice at the end he said, we're fighting for each other. Right? That's one thing. We're fighting for each other. Uh, the idea that we don't have to live in fear, that we don't have to live oppressed, that we can be free. Uh, in your note sheets, I have in the classical liber liberal tradition, war is just when fought first in self-defense. In self-defense. And second, to liberate the oppressed. Which, in, in, its, in, its, in a way, really is another version of self-defense. It's the defense of the defenseless, right? Um, you, you think back in, in our own history, the slaves, there, there were times when um, slaves had revolts, but they were very quickly suppressed because they did not have the weight and the might of the entire Union army behind them. And in situations like this, in the classical liberal tradition, we look and when there's tyranny, when there's oppression, when there's systematic violence being perpetrated against the people who yearn for the breath of freedom, we say war is just. It's a horrible, awful thing. No one denies this. 
But the alternative is even worse. Alternatively, when we're under threat, and you can think about World War II here, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, if we had done nothing, the liberal tradition says, we would get bombed more. And in order to stop that, we must defend ourselves, and as a part of that, we engage in a just, a righteous war. And, and so when we're t- telling troops, when we're telling troops what they're, they're doing, we have to ha- be able to articulate this. I have, I have another friend, he's a chaplain uh, in the army. He's not anymore, he's retired, but uh, he did um, several tours in, in, Iraq, in Iraq. And he tells, uh, we were talking about it because he was um, preparing for this while we were in seminary. And it's very explicit in the, in the United States Army, uh, the chaplain corps, and Michael Bacon actually is, is preparing for this right now from our own congregation. It's very, uh, it's, it's required that... Um, the chaplain conceive of what they're doing as preparing people to fight, giving them the spiritual and intellectual resources to be able to fight. If you're just scared and you have no hope of a future, if you don't believe in the cause, it's very, very difficult to take up arms. And so one of the things that chaplains do is they make men and women ready to fight. This friend, he um, during his second tour in Iraq, during the surge, um, there was a forward outpost that came under uh, bombardment. And uh, there was no way to get support to them So, uh, in, at the time. So command came down with the, the, the rule that they were going to wait it out until we could get air forces to come and suppress um, the bombardment. Uh, however, news came from this forward outpost that a, uh, a rocket had hit it directly, and two men who were in my friend's unit had been uh, grievously, that is, fatally wounded. And so my friend uh, asked his assistant chaplain, uh, chaplains aren't allowed to carry a weapon, uh, but they have an assistant who's, de- who's supposed to be their protection, almost like a bodyguard, to drive him out uh, in the middle of the bombardment to be with these men. And so he did, and uh, he was miraculously protected uh, during his, his ride out. And he, he knelt down, and uh, these two men had been, um, their bodies had been uh, severed uh, below the waist. And uh, he held their hands, and he prayed with them as they died. What was he praying? What was he telling them? What well, was the same things that he'd been telling them when they'd come to his chapel services? That what you are doing is just, it's right, you're setting men free. And there awaits for you a crown of righteousness in the next life. That is because that's how we in the classical liberal tradition tend in the West to justify war, set uh, self-defense and liberate the oppressed. But that's not how the church has always understood war. Uh, there's another tradition, the classical tr- uh, Christian tradition. The classical Christian tradition uh, begins in about 383 A.D. This is approximately when uh, St. Augustine was writing. Um, in 383 A.D., uh, in Constantinople, um, the empire, the Roman Empire, became Christian. Uh, the empire, uh, the emperor Constantine declared Christianity the state religion and said, now we're a Christian nation, every, or empire. Everyone from the top down is going to be a Christian. Well, this is a unique uh, experience for Christians because up until this point, the first 400 years-ish of the church, uh, their, Christians had had zero political power. 
And suddenly, when you're in charge of things, it, you, it, you, responsibility clicks in, and you realize, I can't always do what I'm supposed to do. Uh, and so they come to power in, in the empire. They recognize they have to be a part of keeping the peace. And let's be honest, part of keeping the peace is making sure that bad men do not do bad things. And so they had to come up with a way to think through being Christian prosecutors of war. And there were two major elements to Augustine's view, broadly speaking. Augustine says that war is designed to first purge evil. Purge evil. This is in your note sheets. In the classical Christian tradition, war is just when fought to purge evil. And secondly, to create space for holiness. Create space for holiness. In Augustine's world, war is a given. But he's a Christian, and he believes that Christianity and that God is a God of justice, is a God of holiness, and he, and he wants to, us to understand our, our violent, violence being used in order to further that. Right? So you might, in Augustine's context, there were these um, crazy barbarians who liked nothing better than to destroy, maim, and kill, often in the midst of suicide. Uh, so let's be honest, in some ways not terribly different from our own context. And, and he, he looked at that and he said, that is just categorically evil and it has to be stamped out. We must purge that. But at the same time, we need to do it in such a way that we're creating a space in the absence of these barbarians, these Goths and whomever, these Visigoths, in their absence, there needs to be a space for holiness, for the generation of Christian virtue. And so whatever war is, it has to be done with that goal in mind. Let's uh, read just uh, one, of, one of the things that he says. It's, uh, it's an interesting, it's just so different from what we're used to. Um, he asks, what is the evil in war? Now we would say, well, war is horrible. People die, it's really violent, it's horrific. That's not what August- Augustine says. He says, is it the death of some who will soon die in any case? That others may live in peaceful subjection? Notice, notice for Augustine, at the end of a war, no one's free. Because everyone's still ruled. He has no concept of you know, a, a, a free democratic tradition. He lives in a world of emperors and tyrants. And so he says, what? Does it so that we stop some deaths so that others are, have a new king rather than the old one? This is mere cowardly dislike. Not any religious feeling. The real evil in war is love of violence, revengeful cruelty, fierce and implacable enmity, wild resistance, and the lust for power. For Augustine, what's so dangerous about war is not that it happens. For him, it's just, that's just the world is war all the time. In fact, uh, Thomas Hobbes later in the Enlightenment uh, era will use some of Augustine's ideas. He says that the state of nature, the natural way that human beings live, is in a state of war. And that's kind of how Augustine thinks. But what Augustine is scared of about war is that it damages us. It scars our hearts. Because in the midst and the heat of battle, men and women find themselves loving things that are evil. You may have heard of bloodlust. That's real. I have a friend who did a tour in Afghanistan. Um, and in his particular context, there was, uh, there was an act of violence that had taken place. And really at the hands of a child. The child had per- perpetrated violence against um, American Marines. And the child had been injured but not killed in this act of violence. And when my friend saw this child, hate for a child because of what had happened. 
You might remember um, in, in Saving Private Ryan, it happens all the time. At the, at the end of that very first scene, they get to the top of, of, of the hill in Normandy, and, and people are trying to surrender to them, and they're in the midst of such hatred, such violence, that they just gun them down. And I remember watching that and thinking, good. Which is very strange when we're told to govern our lives um, the way that Jesus tells us to govern our lives. And Augustine was very aware of that. The evil of war is that it corrupts you when you do it. So if you want to have a just war, you've got to get rid of the evil. And you have to have a, a, create a space for holiness to, to come into your life, which is really hard to do when you bear arms. Which is why Augustine said war is only, only, only in the last resort. Because it makes this so very, very difficult. Some interesting uh, uh, aspects to Augustine's view. Not particularly bothered by death, violence, horror as such. Because he lives in a world where violence is the norm. Which we have been given by grace not to have lived in for some time. He assumes that liberation, freedom, is never a goal of war because just one person's going to be put in charge after, after another. And what difference does it really make? He thinks that the true evils of war can be felt by either side. That is, whether or not we are the good guys does not exempt us from war's evil effects. Your side might be right, but war can still make you an evil person. And so those are the two views. Those are the two broad, general views of just war theory in the Christian tradition. Um, what sort of war are we seeing in Esther? That's the question, right? We've just seen this... The, this story in Esther where the people are given a chance to defend themselves, they go out, sometimes aggressively, going after people who are not necessarily holding swords. Uh, But they're committing to war, and the question is, what kind of war are they fighting? Is it a classically liberal just war? Is it a classically Christian just war? Is it an amalgam, a combination of the two? Let's look at the text and see what we can can get out of it. Um... I just want to jump back to chapter 8 when when Mordecai is writing the decree. Listen to this decree. This is the opposite of Haman's decree. This is going to give the Jews the right to protect themselves and, and and to stop their enemies. Verse 11, it says, By these letters the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives. And how are they going to protect their lives? Well, they're going to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, including little children and women. And then they're going to plunder their possessions. This is the law Mordecai writes. Let's think about this decree for a moment, the decree that Mordecai writes. In some ways, it looks a lot like classically liberal just war theory because it advises self-defense in order to promote freedom from fear and tyranny. Uh, Haman's, Haman's original decree, and Neil brought this out very well a couple weeks ago, is all about just getting stuff. He just wants to kill people because he doesn't like them. This is not what the Jews um, write. It is for their own self-defense. However, unlike contemporary just war theory, the decree advises war for profit. Do you notice that? It says, after you've murdered everyone, you can take their stuff. So it's not quite a classically liberal notion of just war. Maybe, maybe it's the case that Esther promotes a classically Christian notion of just war. Let's look at a few texts that we just read from chapter 9. Starting in verse 6, And in Susa the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, 
those names which represent the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadathah, the enemy of the Jews they killed. But notice this. Notice this. They did not lay a hand on the plunder. The law authorizes it. You cut these people down. You take what you like. But they don't touch it. Again, in verse 16, on the second day, uh, the remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives. Self-defense. Had rest from their enemies. Killed 75,000. But did not lay a hands on the plunder. Two times the Jews refused to take what by law is theirs. Looking at the battle, despite the allowance of the decree, the Jews do not profit from the death of their enemies. Perhaps, maybe, we're supposed to read between the lines there and see them resisting the evil effects of war, the corrupting influences of violence on their own hearts. Maybe. But maybe there's another reason for this action that they, they take. I mean, look, if you're going to go to war, I mean, you should get something out of it, right? Not the Jews. Let's look. Um, this is just an interesting text. So, uh, Haman, his great, 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 great grandfather was named Agag, and he was the king of the Amalekites. So, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, the prime minister who authorizes their genocide, his great, 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 great grandfather was named Agag. He was the king of the Amalekites, and he was an anti-Semite of the first order. He hated the Jews. He was a real problem for the Jews. And there comes a point during uh, Saul's reign as king where God says, that's it, the Amalekites have to go. It's in 1 Samuel 15. Let's look at some of what it says. Verse 1, Samuel also, Samuel the prophet, said to Saul the king, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Haman's great, 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 great grandfather for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him, this is in Numbers, on the way when he came up from Egypt. There's a blood feud that's been going on for a good thousand years at this point. Now go and attack Amalek, verse 3, and devote as an offering all that they have, and do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, infinite and nursery child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Burn it all. We talked about six weeks ago. Devote as an offering, I have translated there. That's the word harem, which gets translated in the New King James as destroy, but it's not destroy. It really means offer up, make sacred. When you're burning this down, I want you to understand you're not doing this for your bloodlust. You're doing it because these people have to go. They're evil and they're violent and their sickness spreads and it must be destroyed. And when you do it, remember you're doing it for me. Not for your hearts, not for your revenge, not for your anger and your evil. No, you're doing it to get rid of anger and vengeance and evil. So notice that big difference. Devote. And devote what? everything but then take the booty take the plunder no burn the plunder too do you see that ox and sheep camel and donkey you burn that too you're not going to get anything out of this israel you're doing it because it's right and Saul, he nails it, right, doesn't he? Verse 4, so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Talaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And I skipped over to verse 7. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He devoted King Agag, executed him to get rid of his evil. No, he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. 
and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. And their stuff too, right? No, in verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, all that was good, and were unwilling to devote those things as a sacrifice to God. But everything that was despised and worthless, that they devoted sacrificially. So here we are in Esther. And 500 years ago, for the people of Esther, 500 years ago, uh, Saul was given a command by God to get rid of this evil. Notice that he, uh, Agag is, you know, is Haman's great, 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 great grandfather. If, just throwing this out here, if Saul had done what God told him to do, would there ever have been a Haman? No. Because he wouldn't have had any kids. And when the Israelites go to war against Agag, they think, we've done this hard work, we've lost some people, so we deserve to get something out of it. And God says, I don't think you understand what you were supposed to be doing. Next slide. The Jews remember the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul disobeys God's command. In purging Evil Haman, his sons, and their allies, the Jews, are reversing Saul's mistake. By refusing to take the plunder, the Jews are reversing Saul's mistake. And by reversing his mistakes, the Jews are signaling that they are trying to wage a war according to God's will. They are trying to purge evil and resist being corrupted by it. So if you're going to ask what uh, sort of war seems to be going on in Esther, well, it's categorically different in some respects because it's sort of a fulfillment of, of, of a command in, in 1 Samuel to, by God to get rid of this evil. But if we're to talk about it in terms of classical liberal theory or in terms of classical Christian theory, we would say that the Jews combine aspects from both, right? Their war is meant to purge evil, and it's meant to avoid the corrupting effects of doing violence. That's why they take nothing They're getting rid of anti-Semitism so it doesn't come back to bite them, which it will in a couple thousand years. They do not start the war, however. It is self-defense, and it is aimed at their liberation from tyranny from those who seek to do them harm. We need to understand, though, that while it looks like the Jews are are committing in in some very difficult acts a a very um, righteous or just version of war, war is not normally like this. I know because my friends have told me. And so, just a few last reflections and then we'll end. Esther is not a how-to manual for developing a theory of just war. Just because this is what the Jews did in the Persian Empire does not mean it's normative. Uh, It's what we should do now in 2015 uh, in the United States of America. I mean, at the very least, you could notice the Jews were a small minority in a, a pagan empire. And although it seems like less and less every day, Christians are the majority here in the United States. And so just that very thing changes maybe how we might do that calculus. Second, we need to recognize that violence really does scar hearts. I I, I wince sometimes when I read St. Augustine on this. I love Augustine's idea, I love his thoughts, but I I wonder if he's a little bit naive. Maybe it was a different time in in the 4th century, but it seems to me that war, the the possibility of leaving war without those scars that he talks about, it, it seems to me like it's almost nil. 
And maybe what he's saying is, is that even though you get hurt, you're harmed, maybe what you're doing in this just war is you're creating a space where holiness can enter in later. And maybe that's the case, I'm not sure. I know that this is true because I have a final friend who uh, did two tours in Iraq um, in the Marines. And uh, I won't speak for Corey. Some of you know Corey Townsend. I won't uh, give his story. That's his to give. But I will say this. Um, Corey uh, is is very, very much against uh, war now because he has tremendous guilt, even to this day, some almost 10 years later, uh, of the things he did when he was there. Um, And it was really hard to feel like he was a Christian while he was doing what he did. And the point is that violence really scars hearts. And we have to think about what we're asking young men and women to do when we send them over there. Finally, be ready, because uh, as I suggested at the beginning of the sermon, war talk is going to begin uh, amplifying, is my sense, um, as we go forward. Uh, It it appears that um, radical Islam continues to uh, strike fear and and violence into the hearts of people um, around the world, and as a result, the Western powers and the politicians are going to have to think about what they're going to do to stop it. We live in a, uh, in a democracy, a liberal democracy or a republic, so we have some say in what happens here. As a result, we need to think about individually and corporately what our voice, our united voice, is going to be when uh, the drums of war sound again. Personally, personally, I think that what that entails is making sure that whatever happens, if war is going to happen again, yet again, it absolutely must be held to the standards set out uh, by the Jews in Susa, in the Persian Empire. It must be about purging evil so that it does not come back. Get rid of it. It must be about avoiding, insofar as is humanly possible, the corrupting effects that violence inflicts on those who perpetrate it. And maybe, that, maybe that's a mission for our church, and I think we've done an amazing job of that over the years as we've taken in um, Marines and, and, and um, others, especially from Camp Pendleton, and, and given them a place that's safe and healing in the, in the wake of what happens over there. And it must not be uh, simply aggressive. It has to be in keeping with self-defense or defense of the defenseless. And I'll be honest with you, even then, even if we were to do all of that, I still have a hard time with it. And that's because my close friends who've seen it have been really, really hurt by it. And that's not a philosophical or theological position, but it is the position of my heart. So keep that in mind. Be sober. Use wise judgment. Because the drums of war are coming again. Let's pray. Father, we confess that you are not a God who is afraid of keeping, getting your hands dirty. You are a God who is willing to roll up his sleeves when the time is right, when it is necessary. And yet, God, we are a people who are easily broken, easily corrupted, and easily scarred by violence. God, make us a people of peace. Make us the people who are known first 
by our hospitality, first by our love, and only at the last resort by our willingness to turn to the sword. If you call us to that, God, we beg you to show us to do it rightly, to do it justly, in a way that we can love mercy and walk humbly before you. In your son's name we pray, amen.